You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have Angelo Giuliano from New Atlas, who is here to talk to us about Myanmar and Hong Kong and the history of color revolutions in Asia. How did you get involved or interested in Myanmar? Uh, hi, Aisha. Um, I've been interested always in, uh, in the colored revolution. So, so I followed many, uh, several co- colored revolutions. Uh, I used to live in, um, in Venezuela. And uh, when we had the riots in Hong Kong uh, in 2019, it was also an attempt of color revolution. So I had studied and I have uh, first-hand experience in color revolutions. So when I saw what was happening in, in Myanmar, it was just a continuation of the in, what we call the encirclement of China. And we see similar actions uh, that were taken in Thailand. Um, one quick question. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? So... You said you lived in China also? So I've been living in China for 25 years. So um, uh, so I learned the language. I, I left for China to Taiwan at first to learn Chinese. Then I stayed for 25 years. And uh, the last three years I've been in Hong Kong. And uh, I got involved into politics. I mean, ex- exposing the colored revolution in Hong Kong and the, the U.S. meddling uh, because I was just shocked at the difference between the Western media narratives and what was happening on the ground. And this is how I, I got involved. And uh, I came in with the, the knowledge of uh, how the college revolution work. And uh, it was exactly the, the same playbook. Okay. I, I know where the main topic is Myanmar, but I have just one quick question since you said you live in Hong Kong. There is a lot of misunderstanding about the new national security law in Hong Kong. Can you Briefly explain what Western media doesn't quite understand. Okay, it's very important to understand the context. That you need, in order to understand the national security law in Hong Kong, you need to understand the context. So, I will I will go briefly. There's a one country to system in Hong Kong since 1997. So basically, Hong Kong enjoys a, a certain degree of autonomy, and according to the the handover agreement. Hong Kong was supposed to enact the national security law under the basic law article 23. And since it was not enacted, because there was a lot of meddling internally, the seeds of the colored revolution were planted uh, before 1997, before the handover. So it was very difficult for the Hong Kong government to enact the national security law. So this national security law is nothing different than, than what you have elsewhere in the world. Every single country around the world has a national security law that protects from foreign interference. It's mainly against foreign interference. So now in Hong Kong, as opposed to what you had in 2019, you don't have any more foreign agents that are stirring up troubles and they do not accept NED, National Endowment for Democracy, and other fake NGOs to invest into, into a colored revolution in Hong Kong. Okay, um, that makes sense. Um, so now, can you explain to people what exactly you mean by a colored revolution, and what's the purpose of these? Uh, so, 
Well, we, we, you need to understand who's behind this. It's about creating a new world order and uh, who's leading this movement is the US and you have also the England and all the NATO, NATO countries that are behind this. There's a shift of power right now, especially with, uh, with China and, and, uh, and Russia. And actually, those are the obstacles for new world order. So they are trying to destabilize China and Russia. So you see uh, Navalny, you know, like uh, is one of them, you know, one of those U.S. puppets. Uh, we had in Hong Kong, uh, Joshua Wong. You had the equivalent in Venezuela, which is Juan Guaido. <laughs> yes. You know, it's, it's what I, I, I like to call the useful idiots of the, the, the West. So basically, it's just... Uh, so how the color revolution work is uh, it's about massive investment over time into the civil society, into uh, journalists, into media. What is civil society? I've heard this in regards to Bolivia, but then the civil society ended up turning into like a violent fascist death squad. So what exactly is it? I, I see that it being thrown around like Hillary Clinton throws it around, Anthony Blinken, but I've never understood what it meant. Yes, it's actually, it's, it's actually, I'm using their words, actually, it's, the, it's probably the Clinton's word. It's just whatever is not parties, what is, whatever is not, it's not directly into politics, like political parties. So it uh, could be trade unions, could be uh, anything that, that actually has influence in society. So um, in, in the case of Hong Kong, you had a massive investment into student unions, trade unions. I mean, absolutely everywhere. They even had their hands on the, on the, the, the school books. So they were teaching kids from, uh, I mean, very early on to hate China. It was uh, just British colonial education. So this is how they do. Uh, the, the investments comes in different forms. It could be uh, from National Endowment for Democracy, Reminding the that National Endowment for Democracy is just a, a, a rebranded word for uh, the CIA. So they're doing what the, the CIA used to do um, hidden on a hidden way. Can we just back up? I just kind of want to understand. So yeah. basically, the U.S. government starts affecting trade unions, the educational system, and what else? Uh, universities too, uh, you know, it, it's it's all about money can influence. From the moment you start giving grants to university, then you you have a, a, a say to who's who are going to be your professors. Mm -hmm. I give you just uh, one example. In Hong Kong, uh, it was since there was no national security law, anything was possible. There was a, they started to do a study in Hong Kong of uh, they paid the twelve hundred students fifty US dollar to attend the the protest so it was a social experiment to see okay what happens if we pay them giving them incentives to go to protest and what is the impact on the second protest third protest fourth protest on this first 1200 people so what they found out is that uh, if you pay 1200 people the ratio of people that are going to to go with them is around eight people so by paying 1,200 people, you managed to get 100,000 people to go on the protest. Oh, wow. So depending on the country, if it's a country like India, $50 can mean a month's rent even. So you can get a lot of people to go to those protests. Exactly. There's a very good article written by Kit Clarenberg. Actually, Kit Clarenberg 
covers Myanmar too. And he wrote an article on RT. You can check that. I, I will share this with you. But that's just an example. But Hong Kong was just, just the extreme. And uh, uh, what happened is that whenever the, the seeds were planted way a long, long time ago, we are talking about before the handover in 1997, you already had the MI6 that actually started you know, to plant the seeds for uh, a color revolution that would happen around 20 years later. Uh, just to give you an idea, the color revolution, this concept started with uh, Gene Sharp, and uh, probably the first attempt was in 1989, uh, Tiananmen Square in Beijing. And right after, you had the same uh, in, that happened in Myanmar, the Saffron Revolution, which was uh, one or two years later. So it gives you just an, an idea. Uh, no, sorry, actually, Myanmar, Saffron Revolution was... It was 1988. Exactly. Okay, so that was the first one. Can you talk about what happened? I've tried to understand it, and... I haven't been able to fully understand how they take... I, I see these AstroTurf protests, but I don't understand how that leads to taking over the government. And that mechanic is always missing in my mind. So what went on in 1988 and how did it work? Uh, it didn't really work. It, it actually, even up to now, in, uh, in, it never worked the, uh, in Myanmar just because the you need to understand that the military in every single country, uh, they are the one that are protecting a national sovereignty. It's the last string. If the military falls, then the national sovereignty, it's, it's over. The country is just fall, falls apart. Uh-huh. And a lot of uh, um, Westerners, they think that democracy, uh, they don't understand that democ- you need to have sovereignty in order to have democracy. Self-determination comes above everything especially so this is what we are trying to do is just to whenever we are exposing those colored revolution we are exposing the the meddling the foreign meddling and we are promoting self-determination self-determination in a sense that every single country need to decide for their own fate and there should be no uh, foreign interference so so this is the whole work we're doing whenever we are covering Myanmar is to uh, explain to people what is the history how did it work? Um, we need to go back to colonial time mm-hmm. and, and then those countries trying to become independent. Uh, some manage, some don't. Uh, we have various examples, you know, Haiti never managed. Uh, then you have Cuba. I mean, Haiti is a failed state. They, 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 I mean, the U.S. managed to, have a, to, to, to hijack the politics there. Uh, Cuba is an example where... Uh, it was impossible for the U.S. to hijack the movement. So what do they do? They do sanctions. With Myanmar, can you kind of explain what happened in 1988? Because I don't think any of us are familiar. Uh, so it's important to just go back to 1948. There was uh, independence. So before 1948, there was a colonial uh, British rule. And then you have a period where, where they, they try to have a democracy. And then there was a coup, the, the takeover by, by the military. And uh, in 1988, you had just a movement just going to the streets and they wanted uh, reforms. They wanted to, and probably uh, they, they might have legitimate uh, uh, concerns. People wanted to have a say in the politics. Uh, so for a long time after the, the, the military just stayed in power, uh, there was uh, the U.S. and uh, the Western powers, they started to put lots of pressure in Myanmar, 
And this is when the, the sanctions started to escalate. And then, uh, so what the, the West wanted to was to put their own person in power. In here, we, it's, uh, it's Aung San Suu Kyi. So how do you do that? It's about financing a, a whole political movement. So the funding came all from the West. Uh, and it was about uh, shaping the image. So giving her the Nobel Peace Prize. So you know what it, it means. I mean, Nobel Peace Prize. Hold on one second. So I heard that she lived in the UK for a long time and she was married to a British man around 1988. So she was British, I guess. <laughs> Yes, uh, I, I don't know if she's... Uh, no, no, I mean, she's culturally, she had lived in the UK. Absolutely, absolutely. She was she was much more, I mean, culturally, she's probably much more British than she's uh, Burmese. She she has a big advantage is that uh, her father, uh, uh, General Aung San, is a national hero. Mm-hmm. And this is why she, she managed to have a, a high-level education abroad and uh, she managed to be able to just to go on the fast track to politics. But she's been, uh, I mean, basically hijacked by her U.S. supporters. Uh, it's very hard to, to understand what is really happening with, uh, with Aung San Suu Kyi. Is she a puppet or is she just hijacked? Because when you start giving too much power to your masters, then it's very hard just to get away from that. So she was arrested sometime in the 1990s and she was under house arrest. And in the West, they made a big deal and called her a political prisoner. Do you agree with that assessment? No, no. Well, the thing is that uh, it was uh, it was for the purpose of her arrest uh, all along was that she was, there was collusion with Western powers. Ah, so it was literally treason. Uh, absolutely. I mean, just uh, there are different ways to say it, but uh, it, it's it's uh, literally treason. The, the the recent arrest... Wait, let's stay chronological. We're still in 1990s. Okay. So then um, after a long time, they were released. And I guess in 2010, Myanmar got its new constitution, right? Exactly. Was that... How did they... Uh, what was the changes in this new constitution? So the changes, uh, the changes were related to opening up the market capital. So basically, what the pressure that the West uh, put on Myanmar was really it was financially above everything. So basically, they wanted to make some deals with Myanmar and to have access to its resources and to be able to to just to to buy up uh, many many industries in Myanmar. So and also they wanted uh, uh, reforms um, uh, in in terms of uh, democratic reforms. Uh, okay, so they say that these are democratic reforms, but they usually mean capitalistic reforms, right? That's what they mean. That's what they mean. It's just uh, it's just a cover up. The thing is that they it doesn't matter if it's a democracy or if it's a dictatorship, but it needs to go in in the direction that the U.S. State Department wants. And that uh, also that the, the big corporation want. So it's very interesting. There's a paper in 2010. There, there was a meeting uh, with all the big guys that are usually behind the color revolution. So it was organized by Asia Society. And within this meeting, uh, there was Human Rights Watch, the usual, you know, the mm-hmm. usual people. There was uh, uh, George Soro himself. There was uh, uh, Sean Turnell. Which he, which became later on a close advisor to Aung San Suu Kyi. 
So this is a very uh, important element. So those people, they were actually uh, planning on how they could get their hands in, in, their, in the economy of Myanmar. So you see, it was very clear. And this paper is just open, you know. Uh, I think I've shared, I've shared this paper with you. Yep, I have it. So uh, in order to lift the sanctions, they had to do those, uh, the, the military had to do the, some reforms, but they didn't do it completely. Uh, so what the military did was that in order to change the, the amend the constitutions, uh, you need to have 75% of votes in mm -hmm. the chambers. In the constitution, there is a clause that says that the military have a slot of 25% of vote in the, the chambers. Ah, so they kept that, I see. Exactly, exactly. So they kept that. It was very smart. But the thing is that from 2010 up to now, there was, a, I mean, basically a hijacking of the democracy in, in Myanmar, meaning that when you have so much meddling, uh, fun, foreign funding, which is influencing the, the, the elections in Myanmar, it's, it's no more a democracy. I would challenge the same with the US. I mean, once money is involved into politics, should you call it a democracy? I mean, it doesn't make it. Absolutely not. But the first person you mentioned is Sean Turnell. Yes. He is an Australian citizen, right? Yes. And what is his role inside of Myanmar? So Sean Turnell, he's a Aung San Suu Kyi closest advisor. Uh -huh. he, his background, he used to work uh, to be a consultant for the U.S. State Department for U.S. aid for George Soros. Okay, so this would be equivalent of, say, somebody who's working in, let's say, Iranian intelligence going to advise like becoming the secretary of treasury for Joe Biden, right? Something like this. I mean, it's just, it's just absolutely unthinkable. If you were to reverse this uh -huh. and apply it to the US, it would be just unthinkable. But it's not only Sean Tunnel. I mean, uh, there are several advisors. Uh, and um, if you, they have one thing in common, one of the main tasks they, they, are, they are focusing on are related to the Belt and Road Initiative. So this is really... Okay, okay, wait, 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 slow down. Oh, sorry, I kind of want to go chronologically because there's a lot to remember. So mm -hmm. when Aung San Suu Kyi was the leader, it seems like China and Myanmar tried to do these different kind of infrastructure projects that kept on getting stalled or something happened. So can you talk a little bit about what she did as a leader? Okay, a lot of people, they think that actually because Aung San Suu Kyi, she signed uh, several deals in uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, they, they think she was siding for China. It, it is not true, actually. She was forced by the military to sign those deals. And what she did was just to either slow down or, to, uh, or not to sign those deals. She did everything. Her main focus was just destroying those Belt and Road Initiatives which uh, which Myanmar needs desperately. How poor are the people in Myanmar? Can you just give us a rough estimate? Like, does everyone have access to water or are majority without water? Uh, for having been twice in Myanmar, uh, I can say it's, it's probably a, a, a bit higher than the level of India, but it is still very ext uh, extremely poor. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's probably, the, uh, in, in Asia, the, the most diverse uh, nation. There's probably uh, over 100 uh, different nationalities within Myanmar. So it's a very complex. There are many, many mixes. 
and and you have many uh, so um, regions that are very remote they don't have access to i mean there's no roads oh or, wow and, and then they can't get basics like electricity and if something breaks down they can't go to the hospital things like that exactly exactly so somehow even with with the sanctions uh, i think myanmar managed pretty well but uh, so so what the us did was just to 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 force myanmar to take side and but but um, you, you need to understand that myanmar has uh, has uh, borders with china and it's been trading with china for 2000 years uh, while the us has absolutely no trade with, with it's it's extremely marginal what the us trades with myanmar so for myanmar cutting ties with china doesn't make any sense so there's probably 30% of trade of myanmar trade that is done with the, with china so the main partners are, are thailand singapore and in china so the idea why I call a revolution in myanmar it's um, the idea is to 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 create a client state and um, and if this doesn't work well a, a civil war and then uh, and then just just have a, a scenario like syria scenario wow. where, of divide and conquer okay so what is the motivation is it purely the cold war with china or is there something different The, the US strategy in the region started a long time ago it it, it starts um, it was back in uh, in the pentagon papers already the US was already looking at the future china emerging china so vietnam was was the start of the of the the strategy of encirclement and they were trying starting to plant the seeds so they planted the seeds in many places uh, in thailand myanmar um you had also in Xinjiang in Tibet in Tibet they were financing the Dalai Lama and uh, in 1970s they were already financing the the World Uyghur Congress so you see this strategy started a long time ago so it's either they managed to get them uh, those countries as a client state or they stir up problems either through sanctions or or divide and conquer strategy okay so Now let's talk about Aung San Suu Kyi's presidency. Um what did she do? And also can you talk about the last election in 2020? What happened there? Okay, uh just one thing she uh, so the status of Aung San Suu Kyi because uh, um because she doesn't fulfill the, the the conditions to be president, she she has a special status that that was created especially for her, which is a state councilor. What does that mean? it's a state council it's it's the, the equivalence of being a president but because i think it's related to the fact of citizenship either her citizenship or a family uh, kids kids being foreigners it's probably one of those details but they created the position especially for her but it is de facto the uh, president of position so what happened in 2021 uh, the coup uh what well, it's actually not exactly a coup uh, it's a it's it's a constitutional takeover so in the the Myanmar constitution the military can take over at any time for a period of maximum one year after one year it's supposed to uh, uh start new elections so why why the takeover there are several reasons one of the reasons the tatmadaw which is the the Myanmar military are claiming that there were uh, large frauds people voting twice three times 
uh, this is one of the reasons. And then there's uh, reasons of uh, foreign meddling, so treason, and also reasons of um, uh, related to corruption. Oh, okay. Um, one thing, though, is can we go back to how the U.S. infiltrated her different parts of her government and all the foreign advisors before we get to the uh, corruption part? Uh, so you see, for example, uh, where the money comes from. Uh, Chantonelle is a close advisor to Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, mm-hmm. And he is, uh, his money comes from a, a company called MDI. I don't know if it's MDI or MID, which is financed by USAID. So oh, it's see, NDI, National Democratic Institute. Uh, no, no, it's it's actually related to to Myanmar. So M- Myanmar uh, Democratic Institute, something like this. So uh, it's uh, it's not the NDI, but uh, so in this case is MDI, which is financed by USA. So the the money comes mainly when it comes to Myanmar. It comes in the for, uh, from USA. So USA, fifty percent is going going for humanitarian purposes. And 50% is going into meddling in uh, Myanmar politics. Ah, and it looks like as early as 2012, she has been at least publicly receiving NED money. I mean, not, not surprised. Uh, again, just, uh, I mean, this is my impression. I think that what the military did was to let it go uh, to, to a certain level where where they could expose all the foreign meddling. This is my impression because what happened in February 2021, it was all related to the financing. So they arrested the team, the the Soros Foundation in Myanmar, and they blocked the funding of uh, Soros Foundation. And then you had uh, lots of actions which which was related to blocking those those foreign funds uh, and foreign agents. So, so it, it was. They didn't. They didn't say it openly, but uh, most of the arrests were related to foreign meddling. I guess I just looked at some NED records, and they have been actually funding some kind of radio station in Myanmar since at least 1990. So, oh yeah, yeah. The, well, the media, the media. Well, they they're funding uh, Myanmar now, which is one of the main media. Which is run out of uh, from from Thailand. They run the the most of those medias are actually uh, run from Thailand, but they are related to Myanmar. But most, if, when it comes to propaganda, the propaganda, the funding is going through USAGM, which is the propaganda arm of the US, mm-hmm. and the budget is around one billion US dollar per year. So to give you, give you an example, they're financing uh, Radio Free Asia. Oh yeah, Voice of America. Uh, the, the financing when it comes to China, they are the ones actually funding Falun Gong. Falun Gong is financed by the Open Technology Fund, which is financed by USAGM. So you see, there are many ways to finance uh, either USAID, USAID, USAGM, and then you have uh, parallel foundations like George Soros and also those uh, those fake fake uh, human rights uh, like Human Rights Watch and yeah. I mean, Amnesty International, it's it's the same. It's just... Uh, yeah, we already had an episode with Dan Kovalik, which where we talk about the human rights industry. So listen to that. Okay. So, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. 
No, no, exactly. And, and, and I think I mentioned also those fake env environmental uh, NGOs. I mean, just uh, they're trying to, to stop the development of uh, Myanmar uh, under the pretext of keeping a, a, a nice scenery. I mean, just uh, which is just ridiculous, which is very arrogant. Okay, so what we have here is somebody who is very pro-Western. And I guess, how is she, Aung San Suu Kyi, useful for the Westerners? Like, what were they trying to do? How were they trying to take over Myanmar? The main functions, uh, if we are looking at the last 10 years, one of uh, the main functions of Aung San Suu Kyi's was to avoid uh, having Myanmar to side too much uh, pro-China. So there was a, there, there were lots of projects, very large projects of infrastructures to be done with the, the China, and she did all she could to stop them. There's a there's one example of a, a project which is a, a milestone dam, a, a 3.8 or 3.6 billion US dollar dam, and she was against, and the the Shantanel was also against, and they managed to get some NGOs to fight against this dam. So there was a, a, a paper from WikiLeaks that exposed the, the financing from actually the uh, US embassy uh, was directly financing some NGOs. So paying people just to go out in the streets and to fight the dams that they, they need desperately, because again, the dam is going to solve problems of flooding, going to solve problems of electricity, so it's just ridiculous when you you're looking at this. I mean, she, she was working against her country because uh, the only way that Myanmar can develop is by first, first build, building infrastructure. You see the example of China, what they did in terms of infrastructure, and mm -hmm. this is the foundation for future growth. Chinese say that if you want to become rich, start building a road. And it's extremely wise, and it's a long-term strategy. Unlike the in the West, we have a. I think in the West we have too much of a short-term strategy, which is election terms or just quarterly basis, just because we, we need to please uh, the, the the capitals and the SMP and Dow Jones, you know. So it looks like she tried to push through some reforms through Parliament, but it failed. Is it because of the military or what happened there? Well, the the reforms she tried to push was especially related to amend the constitution. She wanted to have full power. The, the military still had powers, uh, the powers that she wanted. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, many projects were linked to national security and the Tatmadaw, the, the Myanmar military had, was the only one to have a say in it. So this is, this is what she wanted to do. So it was about amending the constitution. So they were pressing very hard to do that. And uh, so this is why they, were, they went to the street and, and they, they wanted those, those change, you know. Uh, so we, we, have, we have similar things happening also in, in Thailand, where you have a, a, a NED, which is finding, financing NGOs that are actually focusing on changing the constitution. I mean, that is ridiculous. Imagine if the same was happening in the U.S., Russia funding NGOs in the U.S., which which would be pushing for changing the, the U.S. Constitution. I mean, we need a really major change in the Constitution, but yeah, I understand. <laughs> no, I understand. It has to be organic as opposed yeah. to foreign-based. Yeah, and, and again, constitutions are the rules of the game. The main problems around the world is that 
uh, constitutions are written by the elites. Uh, in reality, people should write the constitutions because the constitution is what protects you from the elites. So why would you, why would you have the, the elites writing the constitution, the rule, rulers of the games? Uh, okay, hold on. It looks like uh, we're going to play this little audio clip later, but it looks like her Australian advisor himself was writing parts of the con new constitution she proposing. Is that right? Exactly. She had several advisors. Uh, Chantanel was one of them. Uh, there was another one which was more like a lawyer, uh, Sanpe. His name was Sanpe. And he, was, he had two focus. One was uh, working on a new constitution and one was uh, how to, uh, on arbitrage related to the Belt and Road Initiative. So you see, I'm having those close advisors that are not working for your country, but, but against your country. That makes sense. And so... Now, in the Western media, we don't hear anything. We just hear that in February, the military took over. But we don't understand the backstory of how there were these complete foreign advisors and who were, I guess, literally writing the, the proposed constitution. So it was going to turn Myanmar into a completely... I don't know what a client puppet state maybe. Exactly, exactly. Well, well again, the problem is that the, the narratives, the when when you the the Western media's have the monopoly on the narratives. Remember, I mean, all the the state-owned media's were banned in the West. Even now, actually, uh, uh, just this afternoon, I tried to go into one of the main media, which is uh, the Global Light on Myanmar. It's actually, I cannot even have access to that. So they might have done the same as they did to Iranian press TV. So you see, when you have only one version, it gets really, really difficult to, to have the, the real information on what is happening in Myanmar. Oh, wow. Yes, I just tried that and it banned. It looks like it's having a DDoS attack. So you're right. Yep. I've also had the same thing when I tried to visit newspapers from North Korea where I need to use a VPN to tunnel it from another country. But yes, in the U.S., it looks like I can't access the global light of my Myanmar. Yes, again, uh, it's very important to, just for me to explain that it's not about taking sides. It's just about exposing the foreign interference. It, it's no rocket science. It's only about following the money. Once you have the money in the politics and you can prove well the medias are being paid by national endowment for democracy and uh, u.s embassy and so on it, it's just obvious that uh, that people are paying and once they're paying they're asking for some results so the people the protesters anywhere in the world they might have legitimate reasons but they tend to be hijacked so I'm not saying that those protesters are not, not looking for reforms and, they, and, and probably there are many legitimate uh, claims, but the problem is that it, once it's being hijacked, it, it's over. You know, there's a, when I saw the protesters in Myanmar uh, having all slogans all written in English, well, uh, asking for R2P, responsibility to protect. So basically foreign, uh, invasion. foreign invasion, exactly. But knowing that uh, in Myanmar, the English literacy is around 1.4%. Interesting. So basically, it means that the entire thing was a performance 
for the West. Yeah, well, well, keep in mind that they are protesters are trained are trained to how to protest, how to to create fake news, and so on. They, you know, they, they they've been trained. A lot of them actually have been to the Oslo Forum, uh, Freedom Forum, and they've been trained on on how to to how to act as a protesters. And it's part of the playbook of the the Colored Revolution. You know, it's- yep, with Sergey. Sergey Popovich or something like that. His name exactly is a Serbian. Serbian. Yeah, 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 yeah. Serbia. Again, I mean, look at the background. There's also one, a guy from uh, from Venezuela. Um, Leopoldo Lopez. No, no, Thor Halverson. Exactly, exactly. So, so it, it's all the same. They, 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 and again, they, they are inspired by by successful uh, colored revolution. I would say one one of one that worked. They managed to. To go through was the Maidan revolution. Oh, and look what happened to Ukraine. There's food insecurity for, like, there's not enough food for people. No, it's it's a it's a failed state. It's, yeah, uh, it's terrible. We, and again, there's a uh, the problem is that uh, if you look at the uh, Ukraine, uh, keep in mind there's a there's a, a minority, a large minority of Russian speakers. They are actually becoming second grade citizens. They they're banning. Russian medias, I mean, Ukrainian Russian medias, Russian speakers, me, speaking medias, and they, they, they're trying to, to suppress uh, Russian speaking language, while uh, Ukraine is uh, has a long tradition, uh, Russian traditions, you know, so, so it's just absurd, it's completely absurd, and when you look at geographically where Ukraine is, it's just close to Russia, most of the trade was with Russia, was not with the U.S. So the U.S. poured four billion U.S. dollars into Ukraine uh, to topple a democratically elected president. And now, look at what where Ukraine is. Mm-hmm. They they, uh, they used to to receive two, three billion U.S. dollars of transit fee uh, with the North Stream. Now, with North Stream two, they won't have any penny. Uh, so and, and people in Ukraine are, are leaving Ukraine. There's no prospect, and everything that was promised by the U.S. never came in. You know, just uh, if you compare Ukraine and Belarus, they're right next to each other. There's a world of difference because one remained sovereign and the other lost its sovereignty. Exactly, exactly. It's just uh, again, I I think um, even though some countries have problems, you know, they need reforms. But once you but but you cannot do any reforms if you don't have the sovereignty that which is secured. You know, probably even us in Europe, when during the Second World War, we didn't have democracy stopped because because you are at war. So what are you expecting from Cuba? Cuba could do reforms. They could, they could, but it should be under their terms. But if you if Cuba is under sanctions and being constantly attacked. You cannot do reforms. You need to protect the your, your country's sovereignty above everything. I think most people don't really understand what the role of the military was and how there are all these ethnic militias in Myanmar since for a long time. So when they hear military dictatorship or military rule, they probably are not getting the right picture. So can you talk about how the context of the military in Myanmar is different? Than what they think of, I guess. <laughs> well, well, this one thing actually we didn't mention before. It's uh, Myanmar has been uh, 
forever. I mean, the last 50 years has been always under like uh, active or passive civil war. So you have those minorities in, in Myanmar that are fighting the, the, the central government. And uh, some of them are actually financed by the US. I give you an example. You can go under free Burma Rangers and you can clearly see they are even trained in, in, in some cases by foreigners. So you see, it's this strategy of divide to conquer. Also, Myanmar has a problem is that um, under colonial rules, this is, uh, this is typical from uh, the British colonial era, they used to give the power to minorities against yep. the majority. Same exact thing in India. Exactly. And uh, so, so you have those animosity. And uh, so in the case of Myanmar, the military are the ones that are actually uh, maintaining a, a certain cohesion of the country. Even when it comes to into the, the, the case of the Rohingyas, a lot of people, there was a misinformation when it came to Rohingya. People thought that actually the military were fighting, were, were actually bullying the, the Rohingyas. It was not like this. Actually, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, she's extremely, uh, uh, very nationalist and, and pro-Burmese, uh, ethnic Burmese, which is the majority, around 60%. Uh, and she was actually the one bullying um, the, the Rohingyas. Uh, the, the, I mean, not her, but her people. Oh, yeah. If you look at some of her interviews, she refused to speak to this uh, journalist because she was Muslim. So she has always had that uh, bigotry against Muslims. Yeah, and they, they don't recognize, uh, they don't, uh, Rohingyas still up to now, they don't have uh, the citizenship, uh, you know, they don't recognize them as being part of the, uh, being a, minor, uh, a Burmese minority. So I'm not sure if it was you or Brian who mentioned this, but it seems like there was at one point the military was working as a halfway compromise to giving them some kind of legal status. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I think this this is on hold because of uh, the the military uh, uh, constitutional takeover or the coup. This is on hold, but there was there were talks about them participating into the elections. But I don't have the exact status of the. Oh, okay. So there was okay. Also, can you talk about all the militias and all the ethnic violence that is constant in Myanmar? <laughs> So this moment, where you have lots of uh, protesters that, that are leaving the, the the cities and they are going into the jungles and they are being trained by those ethnic minorities militias. So and um, you have many cases of uh, bombing, burning. They they they're asking for people to boycott the state. I mean, basically, to not to go to schools and to take sides. It's either uh, you are with us or you are against us. So you have uh, you have village leaders being killed randomly. Mafia, it's a mafia style. So they go around. I'm going to say it's the Contra style, <laughs> like in Nicaragua, um, <laughs> it, because, like I said, in Nicaragua in 1980s, anytime anyone even remotely had a like a if somebody was a postal clerk, you don't think of that as collaborating with the government, but they would kill him in the gruesome way. And this is what I see. From the headlines, like there have been local officials, low-level government employees who've been killed. And apparently there have been some bombs in schools, too, that we don't hear about in the West. 
No, exactly. They didn't want kids to go to school. So you, they wanted, uh, there's probably 25% of abstentions of kids not going to schools because of being, being afraid because, because of those bombs. Uh, um, so they're bombing bridges and, and there's a random killing. Uh, the, this is um, the stage of uh, um, antagonizing and polarizing society. I've experienced this when I was in Hong Kong. They were asking people to take side. It was, you, you're not, you either blue, which was pro, pro-establishment, or you are yellow, which is anti-Chinese. And they really ask, uh, even businesses, they were asking, okay, are you blue business? Or are you yellow business? But never accepting that uh, you have in in most of countries you have a, a, a silent majority of people that are not politicized. So in the case of Hong Kong, they were asking, they, they were forcing people just to take side, and that's that's the strategy. It's about just dividing as much as possible. So basically, even though they're being portrayed as peaceful protesters there's a lot of violence that's getting swept under the rug. Where are they getting the weapons and things like that to do the violence? This uh, at the beginning, well, the violence started from day one. They were never, never violent. The only thing is that uh, later on, the Western media, they had no choice but to say, well, you know, the oppositions, those peaceful protesters, they are actually using the weapons of the oppressed. I mean, you know. What I uh, first read is the Syria. It sounds a lot like Syria. Um, and I always tell Americans, okay, when was the last time that a Black Lives Matter rally spontaneously became a civil war? It never happens without somebody training a military and pushing in lots and lots of weapons. So is that their plan, something like Syria? Yes, that's the plan. Uh if it doesn't work with putting a puppet regime in place, it's about just destroying the, the whole place. For so, and, and you can imagine the next ten years being a, a Myanmar being on, on standby in terms of uh, in terms of uh, progress. That, that's what can happen. It's just delaying, and uh, um, and it's it, and it's it's very much related to the Belt Road Initiative and to the relationship that Myanmar has with China. What is the relationship it has with China and? How is it related to the Belt and Road Initiative? So the Belt and Road Initiatives, uh, they are the main project as uh, related to uh, to uh, mining, uh, dam project, and there's uh, uh, an oil uh, pipeline which is going all, all the way to the sea, uh, and it's it's very important for China because it's bypassing the Malacca Strait. So uh, there are seashores uh, um, drilling in Myanmar, and uh, and this is where they they get they extract the oil, and and China needs this this oil and, and gas. So you have this pipeline which is going all the way from the sea to China, and China. One of the main problem of China is how it can bypass the Malacca Strait. So you have in many cases the U.S. trying to stop those projects. Um, one of the the big projects that was essential for China was the the Kra Canal, which is a, a canal which is cutting into uh, uh, Thailand, and that was the the would have been a big win for China because it would avoid to the Malacca Strait, because the risk for China is to have. Uh, a blockade of the Malacca Strait, and it would be just the end of China. So no, no more, uh, no more possibility to trade and to to have access to the the, the oil, mainly oil. Yeah. 
And how was this deal going to benefit Myanmar? What was the infrastructure that China agreed to build? I believe they tried to build a seaport, right? Yes, the seaport. Uh, the seaport. The was uh, actually the. It's going to go through, but they downsize the seaport, uh, so it, it's, it, it will not be the size uh, of uh, of uh, what it was originally planned. And uh, but from the last information I have is that the seaport should go ahead. Uh, but again, those projects are very viable. There's, there are many studies being done before that, and uh, the loans that China is giving for uh, are much more attractive than the IMF and the, the World Bank are giving. And they are not conditions to reforms. Again, you know, when you see the IMF giving <laughs> loans, it's just a mafia-style loans. Yep. Uh, and they're putting conditions. Basically, okay, we give you a loan, but then you need to do reforms. You need to give access to... Western predators uh, access to your economy, uh, and, 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 and also you you need to to sell state-owned assets. Yep, a privatization. Well, just I, I call it what it is. It's a rape. It's raping a country. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean it is very devastating. On this podcast, we've studied the one in Bolivia where they even privatized the water and the rain. It's ridiculous. Ridiculous. You may be asking yourself, why are we covering Myanmar and Aung San Suu Kyi this week? Well, she let her subscription lapse. Don't let this happen to you. So, step one, go to historically.substack.com and subscribe. Step two, don't do genocide. Step three, catch our live streams on Twitch, Rockfin, and YouTube to learn more about feline friend and revolutionary Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov by tuning in to our Sundays with Lenin or our Late Nights with Lenin. Step four, again, don't do the genocide. Just feel we need to put that out there again since it keeps coming up. Okay, so now you said that Sean Turnell, her main economic advisor, apparently wanted Myanmar to take out an IMF loan. Uh, I, I think uh, I, uh, I didn't say that. I say, I said it was, it was in, a meet- in meetings uh, related to you. Ah, sorry, I misunderstood you. But he was himself taking loans from USAID. But I think they, they were, I didn't dig more into that, but they, they were looking to a close cooperation with the IMF. So those uh, US-sponsored um, advisors, they would rather prefer to have IMF loans than having uh, loans from China. Uh, like I said, even the Council for Foreign Relations agrees that the loans from China are way better terms. So this is clearly working against the best interests of the country. Well, again, the thing is that it's not in, in the U.S. interest to have those infrastructure projects to work because it's creating a new model. What is the new model? Well, it's, it's, a, it's an economy for the people because when you build infrastructure, everybody is going to benefit from that. Mm-hmm. You, you bring opportunities, you lead times, everything is much easier, much better. You, you, put, you put the foundation for growth. And uh, when you don't have those infrastructure projects, well, you know, you, those countries are at your mercy. They, they don't have bargaining power. Uh, you can still uh, extract, extract their, their resources and, 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 and do whatever you want with them. You just, uh, and, and you can buy them over with very small money. 
once they become prosperous, then, then they, it will be much more difficult. So what happened with China at the beginning was the same. The U.S., when it started to negotiate with China, it was hoping that China would just become, will listen to the U.S. and will do the reforms that the U.S. wanted China to do, but China never did that. Ah. This is the reason. Well, again, keep in mind that uh, uh, what happened with China in the old days was that uh, the U.S. tried to pay China against the USSR. And that was the main purpose. But I, I do think personally that China never played against the USSR. It was just a facade. They were trying to split China from the USSR? No, no, no. Well, basically, the, uh, well, because the both countries were communist, mm-hmm. uh, they were actually, they were very close up to a certain moment where under Khrushchev, uh, China and the USSR started to have tensions and you had the Nixons that approached Mao and they started to cooperate to get closer to China. So they, they wanted to play China against the USSR, take China as an ally and, uh, and the conditions where well, China would just accept, I mean, start to, to get investment. Mm-hmm. And gradually they, they started opening up the, the country. But it was very smart. China... Actually, what China did very well was to learn from the, the mistakes of the USSR. Under Yeltsin, he, he, he completely sold off yes. uh, uh, the, the state-owned uh, assets. And uh, it was just dramatic what happened in the USSR. So China was very smart. And, and it was a, what it did was just to learn around the world what, what, what were the best systems that, that could work for, for China. And I think probably they got a, a great inspiration for, from Singapore, mm-hmm. uh, Singapore uh, government style. And you see, I mean, they, it brought results. And the problem is that the China model, which, which I'm not saying that it's exportable, you, you know, I, I don't think this model would work. But because it's delivering, it's becoming an embarrassment for, for the West. Ah. Uh, how, can you, how, how can you promote, uh, I mean, f- or fake uh, Western democracies, which is not delivering, which is a, a, a vicious circle of electing and regretting? Mm-hmm. When you have China, where you have 95% of people that are happy with the system, and you are still calling them authoritarian system. Uh, and in many ways, actually, China is, might be much more democratic than, than the U.S. And I can give you many examples. It's an amazing model that fits Chinese. They like it. And it's, it's been actually, it's just an extension of what was being done 2000 years ago. Yeah. Like I said, it seems like it's a lot of like old Chinese cultural habits and it does work for them. And I guess Westerners need to realize that not every place will handle the same system that they have. Right. Yeah, well, uh, it's uh, the system. The, the foundation is meritocracy. So if you, it's a, it's an, a system of selection and election. So in order to get into the the, the CPC, Communist uh, Chinese Communist Party, well, you need to pass exams. You need to have a certain uh, knowledge of when it comes to politics. So you need to get into the system. And by the way, ninety million of people are actually in the uh, Chinese uh, Communist Party. And no. Western party has that level of participation. Exactly. And then, and then within the party, you have a system of, of uh, selections. You need to deliver. As long as you deliver and you are voted by your peers, you can go up the ladder or up to the Politburo. So you see, it's extremely democratic. And actually, you have also groups which are not the CPC, 
which are related to minorities and uh, and again just back, back to this uh, civil society which is she's the word, broad word but you ha you have participation of the rest of the society but again what you have is that uh, you have extremely competent people because because again it's meritocracy if you are good you go up the ladder while in the west the problem that we have is that uh, it's a beauty contest and it's hijacked by the media and the money so what happens is that anyone which is actually telling the people what they want to hear can get up to the top in the US mm -hmm. as long as it's fabulous. And, and as long and it's not actually is serving not the people that voted for him but is serving the people that finance him in china is very different even though it's a, a market economy but the people have the last say so rich people like the jack ma or the richest people in china have no say in politics actually they really don't want them to have a finger into politics because they don't want china to turn into into uh, um, the western exactly a country ruled by by the 1% so you have this tacit contract between the people and the cpc which is as long as you deliver prosperity well it's fine you need but you need to deliver and, and there's a huge difference that you would never have a, a chinese politician lying to its people for me what i've noticed is i've looked through so many old records when i was doing my article on tibet and it seems like the us was always lying and china more or less told the truth yeah well again again uh, I, I don't know if you know this story but there's um, there's an example of um, of um, there are two two pilots for, for an airplane and uh, and one pilot has thousands of year, uh, thousand hours of experience and the other pilot has no experience but he's telling people if you choose me you are going to fly into first class and people end up choosing the pilot with no experience because they want to fly first class and that's the problem of all democracies democracy requires preconditions preconditions um, i rank them you know the there's education there's maturity of people there's no foreign meddling. There's no meddling of money into politics. Mm -hmm. and there's no biased media. So if you want to have Western-style democracy, this is what you have. You need to have. Additional to that, you need to have a certain level of direct democracy, meaning that there's two things. There's a voting and electing, and we need to differentiate that. People need to retain a certain level of voting rights because when we elect we actually give up our right democratic rights because we elect our masters that are actually going to decide for us for the next five years mm -hmm. and are not going to vote anymore so if you have a, a mix of direct and indirect democracy where you have referendum rights mm -hmm. and if your president is lying to you you can have a petition and having uh, uh, after with a hundred thousand signatures or one million signatures you can actually vote against the people that you elected so you see and why am i coming up with this is that uh, some i still believe that some democracies in the west are working and i've experienced this in switzerland and if you ask most swiss people they will tell you well we are extremely happy about our system so when it comes to legitimacy and, and comparing systems I think the legitimacy doesn't come from one person, one vote, you know, universal suffrage or, or all these, these BS. It comes from the satisfaction of people. Ah, Really what we need to look at. So when, when you have 40% of people in, in the US that are not satisfied about the system, 
that shows you that there is no legitimacy. Well, in China, there was a Howard study that, uh, that uh, and again, uh, Howard cannot be uh, named pro-Chinese, but it said that 95% of people in China love that system. Why? Because it did deliver. It did deliver. And it's very interesting. It's, it's counterintuitive, even though it's always the same party, mm-hmm. but policies changes constantly. Yeah, there was a billionaire who mentioned that. And he says in the U.S. you can change party, but you can never change policy. And in China, you can't change party, but you can easily change policy. Exactly, exactly. So I think this is, a, a, again, you, you know, wh- why would China adopt a system that is not working, which actually potentially can create a Biden or, or, or Trump? <laughs> I mean, why, why would you want to have that? They uh, you know? and, and it's a vicious circle of elect and regret, elect and regret. Again, just, uh, that's just the illusion. So I think, I think one thing that the West should do is first to learn about our own system and trying to, to actually uh, arrange our, our, our own, own house before trying to steer a problem with, the, with, with China, which is actually is not hegemonic, which is a peaceful raising power, which is, we, you know, uh, you cannot blame China. It's four times the size of uh, the U.S. I mean, it's normal that China is going to surpass uh, uh, U.S. Uh, GDP. Uh, you cannot contain China. You cannot deny Chinese people to have a certain level of prosperity. I mean, how inhumane is that? And this is in the name of human, f- fake human rights, uh, Western human rights, you know, trying, and it's just, just a, a better marketing for, for imperialism. Yeah. And I guess what a lot of people don't seem to understand is the, I mean, Western propaganda literally shows, uh, I remember watching this one, like I, I can show you two or three articles. One is from Bloomberg that says, China said it's curing cancer, but are they curing too much cancer? So there's always a spin. So it's Western propaganda is not ideologically neutral. So people never learn what actually is going on half the time. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, well Chinese are wise, you know, there's a, uh... You know, there's a, there's a saying in Chinese, uh, in Chinese it says, it's about know yourself and your enemy. The problem is that there's so much ignorance when it comes from the, the West, I mean, Western politicians. The problem is that they don't know that they don't know. That's the problem, you know? And, and there are four, four levels of cognitions. The, the ultimate level is when you master something and you forget that you actually know it. Mm-hmm. So you know that you know it. Well, in the, when it comes to politics and history, in the U.S., politicians, they don't know that they don't know. It's extremely low level. The, the next level should be they know that they don't know. You know, having the humility to say, well, you know what, maybe maybe we, sh- we have everything to gain from what others are doing. And this is what China does. You know, they, they were so curious. Since ni- the opening up of China uh, under Deng Xiaoping in 1979, what they did was looking around the world, what is working. And, and the strategy was, in Chinese, we say, you, you cross the river, you touch the stone while you're crossing the river. You step by step, try and learn, you know, and, and, and adapt. And this is what China, China did. And it was much way better than, than what the USSR did. Uh, you know, so, so they're learning from others' mistakes. So I think we need to self-reflect in the West 
really. And again, you know, it's not about copying uh, China, Chinese economic uh, um, democratic uh, electoral model. You know, no. I, I think I think when it comes to politics, uh, it, it needs to be adapted to the reality of each country. Jesus, mm-hmm. keep in mind that uh, democracy sometimes it can be mob rule. Imagine, uh, I give you an example, India, you have a minority of Muslims. Well, if you talk about democracy, well, you go, you are, and people are not mature, you are going to have the majority of Hindus that are going to vote against the minority of Hindus. Exactly. Under the logic, under the logic of democracy is the mob rule. So this is why now you have in Iraq, they impose the democracy in Iraq, but nothing is moving because it's a different type of, of, of system. It's a tribal system. So it, it's not even ideology, it's about tribes and they're not going to agree. And that's the problem. Again, you know, we, and this is why countries should have self-determination and they should choose their own system. There's no way, you know, many models are not exportable and China doesn't want to export it. No, China is not making the, the mistakes that the USSR did. The USSR was, they had this idea to export the communist model and they were trying to export also their revolutions and reforms. And China learned from that and they, they don't want it. And if you learn from Chinese history, 4,000 years of history, well, China has never, never wanted to be hegemonic. China, when Christopher Colombo found America, discovered America, well, China... Has, a, has had the Navy um, uh, Amada like 30,000 uh, people, mm. uh, you know, and, and many ships. And, and the largest ship was 10 times the size of the ship of uh, uh, the Santa Maria of Christopher Colombo. So it gives you an idea. There was, they, if China had wanted to conquer the world, it, it would have conquered the world, but it didn't want that. It was focused on itself. It, it, it was, it's already a complex society with uh, over 50 minorities, uh, for, for China, the, what was important is to maintain its, the, its own cohesion. And it's always been centered on itself. This is why the, when you look at the, how China is written, the, it's Zhongguo, it's, it means the center of the, you know, the, the, the country of the center, the extremist center on themselves. And it's not hegemonic. So this is why I'm, I'm actually supporting China when it comes and I'm very confident about it's it's re-emerging at the the largest superpower because it's going to be um, maybe the end of of colonialism and and maybe the chance for the global south to finally have a voice and end up imperialism. Because keep in mind, there's there's still seventy percent of the world which is uh, which still still colonized. So many countries, you know, Africa is still colonized. You know, you have 14 countries in Africa that are using French printed, printed currency. That means they can't do anything without France's permission, more or less. Exactly. Uh, and, uh, and then you have uh, many, many countries that, that they cannot, you know, they, they have limited freedom. Uh, I'm not even talking about South America. South America has been, it's been a chaos in the last 50 years because, because of U.S. meddling. So, so you see, I think China is the hope of a new multipolar world. And, and finally, maybe we are going to, to have a, a real democracy on the, the global scale. That makes sense. One thing I do want to cover is how Myanmar has a lot of different militias and a lot of different ethnic conflicts. So can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, this was, uh, 
um, well, probably a, a lot of things are, are related to colonial era. Mm -hmm. And um, well, when when you talk about those conflicts, uh, ethnic conflicts, sometimes it's because the the carving of, of states were done by colonial powers. So sometimes they don't make sense. I give you an example: Baluchistan. Baluchistan is is mixed in three countries: Afghanistan, Iran, uh, and Pakistan. And it doesn't make sense. It should have been a state itself. The same as Kurdistan. Kurdistan is split between Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. It doesn't make any sense, but they did it on purpose. Why Iraq was supposed to be with uh, Kuwait. Mm -hmm. Kuwait was the access to the sea for Iraq. So what they did, they created a state just in between. So it's for stirring up problems. So the same as Iraq. Iraq actually, you know, having mixing the Shia and the Sunni was on purpose. So it's this divide and conquer. Uh, so those animosity of those um, those ethnic groups, they started under colonial rules. Under colonial rules, you, they started creating this animosity between ethnic groups because this is how you rule. If you are coming, if you are the British Empire coming to Burma, and if, if the country is united, you, you're never going to be able to control Burma. But if you divide them and you give more powers to some minorities versus other minorities, this is how it works. Keep the, the country divided. So you have colonial era uh, divisions. And, and also because there is no rules, they are in the jungles and they are actually semi, semi autonomous because you have no rules. Uh, and, and probably you have, you know, like a, it's. Um, my, local masters, local clans that are they, they don't want unities. Uh, so, so again, I mean, sh should they go independent or not? This is not. I mean, it, it's hard to say. But the, the, the animosity comes from a colonial era uh, times. Ah, okay. But I'm trying to understand because there seems to be some militias near the north that are separatists. Is that right? Yeah, uh, I think it's Kachin State. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Yes. 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 What is going on there? Well, you need to imagine. I mean, there is not much connections, roads, and and so on. Um, so they they used to live um, a, a lot, have lots of revenues related to opium, and, uh, and but this this has stopped. And actually, uh, China has stepped in in catching stage uh, and talking to to those uh, dealers, you know, drug dealers. Just to stop the, the opium. So probably they, they want you have a, probably local landlords, local lords that are trying to to keep their powers. It's quite difficult. But again, they are getting money from also the US just to keep on pressuring the the Tatmadan, the, the Burmese uh, Myanmar militaries. So keep in mind that they, they are actually being funded and trained also by the West. Uh, you I, I I mentioned just before free ba Burma Rangers is actually a there's a free Burma Rangers. You can check freeburmarangers.org. Uh, they they are actually training them, and it's it's actually uh, U.S. sponsored. So you see, it's by keep on funding those separatist group, you 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 keep the the country divided, and you keep the pressure on the Tatmadan to further do reforms, which are going to go in the directions of the what uh, Western capitalists want. Ah, okay. So if you have any advice for people who are listening to this, like what should they do? And it looks like the U.S. is continuing to sanction different exclusively state-owned enterprises in Myanmar. Like how do people in the West learn more so that they are not so easily swayed by propaganda? 
Uh, I would give advice. Uh, this is probably one of the person that covers the best. Myanmar is uh, Brian Belletic. Mm-hmm. So you can check his YouTube channels is New Atlas. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, well, just alternative media as uh, just these days, Global Light on Myanmar uh, used to be uh, visible. Now it's shut down. Uh, it's getting harder and harder. So even um, looking at the Western media outlets covering Myanmar, and you can still get some information. You just have to uh, go through the lines, you know, the, you know, because they, they cannot hide the violence that those protesters are, have become violence and they've become terrorists. This is the real world. The, the right word is just terrorist uh, because they're putting bombs and, and they're acting just like terrorists. So I would advise just to follow the channel of uh, uh, New Atlas and uh, no, in normal times, just Global Light on Myanmar. This is the, the official state media. Is it in English language? That's in English. English oh, language. wonderful. Um, do you have anything else that we forgot to cover about the Myanmar situation at all? Uh, well, no, I think we cover most of it. Uh, yeah, I think it's just uh, uh, Myanmar is just uh, another victim. And, and I think it's not the end. You will have, uh, I'm, I'm expecting more countries to be victims of the encirclement of, uh, of China. Uh, keep in mind that uh, uh, now the Senate and the Congress, they voted for a, a, an extra budget of 300 million US dollars, which is exclusively on demonizing China and demonizing the Belt and Road Initiative. So you see this Belt and Road Initiative is going something that is going to bring prosperity in the whole region mm-hmm. and around the world. It's, it's the, the, the new alternative for, for many countries that are desperate to build up infrastructure. And the U.S. is willing to pay 300 million U.S. dollars just to fight the, 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 this hole. That must mean the Belt and Road Initiative must hit the profits in the terms of billions of dollars for American investors, right? Uh, it's more than that. Actually, if you really analyze what is behind this is, um, well, China has a trade surplus. The trade surplus is, uh, generates cash, uh, foreign currency. So China generates uh, probably one trillion per year of mm-hmm. foreign currency. So what the U.S. is expecting is China is still recycling the the excess dollars in trades that it generates into U.S. economy or into buying U.S. bonds. But China is not uh, doesn't want to to participate in what I would call a Ponzi scheme. It just keep on financing the U.S which is actually consuming above its means. So China doesn't want to do that. So what it is doing, China is actually uh, recycling the US dollar trade surplus into the Belt and Road Initiative. And with this, it's actually killing many birds with one stone because it allows China to recycle its uh, US dollar into tangible assets. It allows to, uh, to sell its overcapacity What's the overcapacity? Well, uh, overcapacity meaning that uh, China has a lot of factories that actually can sell more. Ah, okay. So so China could in reality sell more to its neighbors and actually the infrastructures, those roads, actually could buy much easier resources from those countries. Keep in mind that many countries actually have lots of resources, but they are still untapped. Why? Because there's no roads. Ah. Africa, the whole Africa 
has so many resources, but the problem is that there's no road to go to the mine. No, I know it's kind of funny because I was looking at the trains and in South Africa, what the British built was literally went from the port to some gold mine in Kimberley and it was not for the people. So, and they don't have that many tractors to automate easy tasks that we can have so that their children can go to school or whatever, right? Well, but you know, I mean, when you look at the infrastructure in Africa, well, imagine some, some businessmen from that, that want to travel from one African city to another. Sometimes they have to go all the way to England and then down to the, that country because they can direct flight. Wow, my, I did not know that. Well, well that's one of, of the examples. But when you look at the distances, they are small distances. Why don't you build a road? Build a road. Once you have, you build roads, you get them, you, you, you get those, all those products, they will have access to other markets. But uh, Africa has so many resources and, and it is so much isolated. We, we just asphyxiate those countries while, while China is, is giving them an opportunity to build up their, their basic infrastructure. Uh, again, uh, it, we're not talking about the fast train. We are talking about basic. Just, just first of all, bring electricity. Ah. If, if there was electricity in all Africa, that would be just a beginning, a good beginning. You know, there isn't much to be done in Africa. Bring electricity and some basic roads, access to water, you know, and uh, just some basics. That's what they need. Uh, so you see this whole thing about the Belt and Road Initiative. It's actually, it might accelerate what I would call the de-dollarization for the U.S. What does that mean? Uh, well, the dollar, since the, uh, uh, the World War II, has become the, uh, the, the global currency. So it's very useful for the U.S. So you see now with the stimulus packages, they can just print U.S. dollar. It's okay because it's not a closed economy. It's a global currency. So you, if it was a closed economy, you would print U.S. dollar. What would happen would, would be instant, just in any, very quickly, you would have inflation, mm-hmm. hyperinflation. Because it's a global currency, they can keep on printing money and it's not so much of a problem. But then if you have countries like Russia, China, well, like uh, Venezuela, Iran, which are not trading in US dollar, what happens is that it's becoming less and less a global currency. So now you weaken the US. And actually what China is doing with the US, it's hitting where it hurts the most is the wallet. What if you want to hit the US is at the wallet and hitting, you know, all you know, those people that are those those corporations that have been making a lot of money just because of the US dollar hegemony. That's because the US always gives IMF loans in the US dollars and they always come with the condition that you let these our corporations extract resources and China's giving people a different option for development. Uh, no, it's more because when you uh, impose on the world uh, your own currency, you, you can do whatever you want. I mean, you have limitless uh, access to, to, to cash. Mm-hmm. You just Well, China, if it wants, uh, it has RMB. It can print as much RMB as it wants. But if it prints too much, it would, it would, the result would be inflation. Mm-hmm. So in order to have a foreign currency buy other product, let's say it wants to trade the oil. Oil is traded in US dollar. Mm-hmm. In order to trade, to, to buy oil, it needs to have US dollar. Mm-hmm. And it needs to sell something to have US dollar in exchange. 
the US has US dollar and oil is traded in US dollar. It's just print US dollar and can Ah, the US does not have to give anything for what they get. Exactly. It's pretty much a Ponzi scheme. The Ponzi scheme keep works if you have countries that are still willing to finance your deficits. And so the deficit is basically the US is buying much more than what it, it sells. And this is not sustainable. It used to be sustainable after the World War II because well, the, after the war, uh, most of the countries were destroyed. They, they didn't have the capacity to produce for their own uh, market. So the US had a huge trade uh, surplus. Mm-hmm. Uh, up to the, the Bretton Woods, uh, which was uh, 1970, I think, uh, where at some point, they, 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 uh, from World War II to the Bretton Woods agreements, uh, the dollar was backed by, by gold. So at least you could go to the federal bank and uh, and give dollars and you would have a certain quantity of gold. Mm-hmm. But uh, after 1970, they dropped the peg between the US dollar and gold. So basically, it's not backed by tangible assets. So it became from, um, well, it used to be a money because money is something which is backed by gold or tangible assets. It just became a, a currency, uh, I mean, paper toilet currency, I would call it paper. So because everyone trades with the U.S. dollar, the U.S. itself does not. That's why the U.S. was able to get rid of its factories in the domestically, right? In the 1970s or 80s and put it abroad? Uh, well, that was... Uh, not exactly, not exactly. Well, I think I think what it did, you know, the U.S., you know, this whole thing about uh, sending all manufacturing abroad mm-hmm. was how to destroy your own economy. It was one of the huge, biggest mistakes just because it was under the pressure of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. When you are focusing on return and investment and just profit, what you need to do is at some point is just to outsource this mm-hmm. to, to uh, cheaper countries. And that was a short, uh, very short view. And, and I think this is why actually Trump in some ways was right. I mean, you know, it's a big mistake, you know, but again, what, what happens that China beat US on its own game. And, and, and now, now it's, it's difficult just to go back. I mean, how do you go back now? Most of the manufacturing is done in China. So going back to the US dollar, again, you know, this system works as long as you have countries which are willing to still buy U.S. bonds. U.S. bonds is basically the debt of the of the, the USA. Mm-hmm. Now you have no more countries that are willing to buy U.S. bonds. Even Japan. Japan is probably the, the largest bond ho- U.S. bond holders is not buying any more bonds. So what the U.S. is doing now is very dangerous. It's just printing U.S. dollar. And this is why last month you had the over 5.4% mm-hmm. of inflation. But this might be just the beginning the beginning of something which uh, which could devastate the the US economy so now you have i would describe this almost like a a wounded dog which doesn't know what to do and is actually uh, doing doing things with no strategy it's just like uh, it's just going by the day with the with no defined strategy and just trying to get uh, to to gather support to hit on china and and i doubt i doubt countries with the will uh, side completely with the us it will side maybe on words but in a, not necessarily in actions and i think when it comes to actions we need to look at trades you know once you have 20 30% of your trade which is going with china well de facto you are an, 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 an at least an economic ally to china 
uh, and this is hard to break those bonds. It's very rare that you can break those bonds. So now the strategy of the U.S. is how can they get as many countries to side with the U.S. and to, to hit on China? And, and China is the last obstacle. If either China or the Russia falls, huh. then there's a chance that the, you will have a, a new world order and it's not going to be for the people. It's going to be, I mean, we are going to be slaves of, of this system. That makes a lot of sense. And I agree with you. Thank you so much for coming. How do people find you? You can find me on Twitter. I My Twitter is Angelo4, number four, Justice. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. We we have a weekly session with the with Brian Baletic on New Atlas on YouTube, uh, so you can check the the New Atlas on YouTube, and uh, we have a weekly session um, with uh, Brian Baletic on geopolitics. Uh, it's on on current news and geopolitics, mainly related to to uh, the shift to Eurasia, uh, meaning China and and Russia. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate this a lot. And I learned so much. So it was a very fun interview and you should come back soon. (laughs) My pleasure. My pleasure, Esha. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K. T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show. 